0: I remember as a kid peppering my parents as we would make the long journey from suburban Philadelphia to the New Jersey shore, a two hour drive, asking this question Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And the Lord, in his humor and his promise of the covenantal nature of children, uh, we got the same thing. And we didn't live within two hours of the beach when we had our children. So we were peppered for far more long, uh, far longer than that. Uh, But for those who uh, may wonder, uh, this morning, after a journey that we began in September of 2021 in our study of the book of Hebrews, uh, today we are there. We come to Hebrews chapter 13, uh, verses 20 through 25, uh, the end of this particular letter that is called, as we've said repeatedly throughout the series, a sermonic letter. It doesn't carry all of the marks of a letter, but it was one that was a letter. Uh, It carries more marks of of a sermon uh, that would have been in written form and then read uh, in the congregation of Jewish believers, most likely in Jerusalem uh, in the first century. Uh, And so this morning, as we read these words from the uh, unidentified author of the Hebrews, uh, we still hear God speaking. And even in his short words that we have here, uh, he speaks in a practical way that I hope will encourage us today. Hebrews chapter 13, beginning the word uh, in, in verse 20. Hear God speak. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers. Bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy, send, their, send you greetings. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come now to this portion of our service, may we recognize that worship has not ceased so that learning may begin, but worship continues. And As we have worshipped you through coming to you with songs of praise and recognition and adoration, as we come to you confessing our sins with the assurance that as we, forgive our, uh, for, as we confess our sins to you, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Uh, may you also be honored in our worship now as we turn our ear to listen to you, that your spirit would speak to us through this word and even through I as I speak, me as I speak. Uh, Lord, this is your promise, that the word doesn't come back empty. And so I pray that as we consider it this morning, Uh, This word would fortify us, it would encourage us, and it would shape us, that we each and all may grow more and more to be like Christ, knitted together as the body of Christ here in this place. To you be all praise and glory, uh, not only through song, but through listening, contemplating, and then doing. We pray this in all things, in the incomparable name of Christ, our Redeemer King, amen. Historians sometimes note the symbolic irony of John Adams, the second president of the United States, John Adams' final words before he took his last breath on July Fourth, 1823. Adams' last recorded words were, Thomas Jefferson still survives. Now, part of the reason that's noted is because they had quite a, uh, a roller coaster relationship. Historians tell us, uh, one time friends, certainly in working uh, in, in the for the toward the uh, Declaration of Independence, and uh, and then they became bitter political rivalries. The relationship had been restored, and even in their later days, they were writing to one another, and the friendship had been restored. And so uh, Jefferson was on Adams's mind even as he was passing away. Historians note it because of the symbolism. In a sense, is you know, it's July fourth, and and this uh, this man is 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 passing away. But they also note the irony because Adams was also wrong. Five hours earlier on that very same day, still July fourth, which is symbolically significant, Thomas Jefferson had already passed away. But nevertheless, the final words of John Adams continue to linger and. Uh, They they lead historians and those who are just intrigued uh, to ponder that. Interestingly enough, John Quincy Adams, John Adams' son who would be elected the sixth president of the United States just a a year after his father's passing, uh, on his deathbed in 1848, his final words were these. This is the last of earth. I am content. Which I would hope would be not only, perhaps not the words, but uh, the attitude and the mindset that, that I would have when that day comes, whether it's years from now or today. There's just something fascinating for many people in, in the final words. And, and even as I was curious this week in terms of some, I mean, I've heard many, many uh, lists of final words. Uh, try doing a Google search. You'll find out how fascinated people are with final words. I mean, think about some of the ones that you may have been familiar with. We'll start with one that's probably most familiar: William Wallace, "Freedom." Except that historians say that was probably made up by Mel Gibson, but still, it's a great story, isn't it? I mean, those would be great final words if it was true, or if it. Uh, but we just don't know if it was or or that it was. Leonardo da Vinci, interestingly enough, said, "I have offended God and mankind." Sounds very humble. I've offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. But I think I resonate most with Winston Churchill, some days more than others. He said, I'm bored with it all. These are just a few of the final words of famous people in history. And there's, there's not, famous words, they're not only interesting, sometimes even as we may just notice, they, they could be significant, and sometimes they may even be powerful. Rhetoricians say that perhaps the, the most important part of any speech or any sermon is the, the conclusion, the, the final words that are spoken, because those are the ones that are going to be the most Remembered. That's probably why, in a trial attorney, that it's not about the, the brilliance of their question and their, their, the case that they are making through their, their line of questioning, uh, but the case is won or lost usually in the summation. At least that's what I see on the TV shows that, uh, uh, that uh, they, they say. Because those are the final words where things are brought together. That's what is most indelibly uh, imprinted on, on the minds of the jurors who are going to uh, make the decision as to who wins or loses the case. Final words are significant. And here in these verses, we find essentially the final words of the writer of Hebrews. Now, quite likely, he had many other final words. We don't know who he was, or even theoretically possible she was, uh, that that wrote that. Um, But we don't have any others that are recorded for us. These are the final words, the, the message uh, that this writer wanted to leave with that audience and that God wanted to leave from this author in the minds of all believers throughout history, including us, those of us who are, are here today. And as one commentator notes, what the author gives to us is, in this, these final words, is a benediction and a prayer. And so we'll begin with the, the benediction part uh, of it. Now, benediction is a word that you know, usually you mean at the end, and so some of you are already getting excited. We're going to start with the benediction. All right, we're out of here quick. We will be out of here maybe quicker than normal, for me anyway. But um, I know it's all relative, but, um, but we're not quite to that point. Uh, The word benediction simply means good word. Now, as it's applied in the scriptural standpoint, it it usually means a good word that points us to the grace of God, the the nature of God, uh, and and that's what we have here. It is a good word about God, and and the benediction, while it is extended, primarily is found in the the opening uh, words of, of these verses, now may the God of peace The good word that the writer of Hebrews wants to leave with his readers is to recognize the God of peace. The great writer A.W. Tozer notably once said that what comes to mind when you think of God is the most important thing about you. And so let me ask you a question What does come to your mind when you think about God? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Now, in one sense, there are a lot of possible answers, and so your answer today may not be the same as what your answer would be tomorrow. There's a lot of legitimate. There's, God is so great that there's no one particular answer that is the answer, and all the others will get you the buzzer on the game show. Yeah. But the writer of Hebrews wanted us to recognize and to remember our God is a God of peace. And this may be particularly significant when you remember who he's writing to, writing to a a group of Jewish believers who were schooled in the Old Testament. And he's reminding them, our God is a God of peace. Now, I suspect that those Jewish believers at the time didn't have kind of the same difficulties that many of us might have today because they were so rooted in the Scripture. One of the things that is commonly uh, assumed in the church and certainly in the wider world is the God of the Old Testament was you know, mean, cranky, vindictive, and, and wrathful, and the God of the New Testament is just gracious and loving and forgiving and as if somehow either there's two different gods or God went through a life change at some point. And the scripture tells us, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the God of the Old Testament is exactly the same as the God of the New Testament. And Jewish believers now, even as Jewish believers then, understood that the Old Testament is saturated with grace. Even if you begin in Genesis 3, after our first parents messed up everything for them and for us and for everybody else that's going to come, God's response, yes, there was a judgment that came, even as God said there was going to, they were banned from the garden. But the first thing that God said is, I'm going to fix this. Now, as a paraphrase, but God made this promise to our first parents. There's going to come a time where I'm going to send the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent who kind of you know, encouraged you into this mess in the first place. I'm going to do that. Well biologically, the seed of the woman, there's a problem there because the woman doesn't contribute the seed into the birth in a generation. So that's significant to us because it points to a virgin birth that would one day come. And the one who would be born through that virgin birth that one day come would be the one who was going to crush the head of the enemy. He's going to be the one who was going to make all things right. That was the promise of God. That's God's response. You messed it up. There are consequences. but I'm going to fix it for all eternity. And, and All throughout the Old Testament, what we do see is God is just. And because a rebellion warrants to be set down and there is consequence for our sin, we see God's justice and therefore the wrath of God is poured out. But there's also grace because he forgives the people. He, he, he calls the people. He, he empowers the people. He is present with the people. He is constantly forgiving. There is grace throughout the Old Testament, just as there's wrath in the New Testament. See, the reason that we don't recognize it is because all the wrath is poured out in one scene on the cross, where God took all of the wrath that is that is contained in, you know, 39 books of the Old Testament and consolidated them to one day when he poured all of that out upon Jesus Christ. And then the rest of the New Testament is written in light of the wrath that was poured out, the intensity of all of God's wrath being poured out on your sin on the person of Jesus. Consequently, We see the forgiveness and the love because God has already poured the wrath out. He's already been just. It is the same God from beginning to end. And no doubt that the original believers, they already knew this, that God was the same. But their circumstances were such that sometimes it might have been difficult to believe. As I've said repeatedly throughout this uh, the writer of this book is writing to Jewish believers who were living in Jerusalem at a time of intense persecution. And many of them were beginning to either fall away or beginning to hedge their bets and saying, you know, I I like this Jesus and and I I believe that he, he rose again, but I just can't take it. And so maybe I'll go back to the old ways and it'll minimize some of the persecution or In the midst of the persecution, and no doubt, many, many prayers, Lord, deliver us. Lord, heal us. Do what is right. Don't let evil prevail. And yet, it kept coming. It kept coming. The people were beginning to become hopeless. Wondering where God is. Why he's not doing something. Why he's not delivering them. The logical conclusions of history and of the present day often fall into one of two categories. Either God's not able to do anything or maybe he's mad at me. The writer of Hebrews is writing to the people and he's saying, look, I'm going to wrap all this. He's already made this tremendous case dealing with every major theme of God's covenant people. And saying, in Christ, everything is fulfilled. In fact, Jesus is even better. Everything that you value and that you grew up valuing as uh, 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 as Jewish people all pointed to the promise that was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. It's already, it's already been fulfilled. And, and he's writing here in these words and saying, Our God is a God of peace. That's the good word that we are to remember, to fortify them from their hopelessness, to encourage them to continue on in the faith. Why does this matter? Because hopelessness takes root In difficult circumstances, and it is fed when we begin to wonder about God. When I was a sophomore in college. It was early in February. I got a call one night from my father. And he told me my uncle had committed suicide. It was my mother's brother. Who was affable and likable. But apparently he'd been going through some really difficult times. We had moved away. I hadn't seen him in a a couple of years. Um, And so I had no idea. I'm not sure others in the family really knew uh, what was going on and even to this day, I certainly don't know all of the details of it, but he'd been going through a hard time. Uh, he, as I understand, was a man of some faith, but it, our family was not deeply steeped in, in the Word, and, but he believed in God, and so he was crying out to God and looking for help, and Someone had given him a book that was on the bestseller list at the time that was titled Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. Now, no doubt the author of the book had good intentions, as his intentions were to protect God's reputation. Uh, because we all experience difficulties and hardship. And, and so, you know, that's, that's a major question. Philosophers, theologians, everyday people, we also wrestle with If, if God is good and God is in control of all things, why, why is there evil in, in the world? And why am I suffering? Why is this all going on in, in my life? And the writer wanted people like God. But unfortunately, he's words eradicated hope in the readers. Because no matter what his intent was, the the gist of the book is, God is good, and God is worthy of your love. But God can't really help you. He's No, there's there's some things even God cannot control. And, And the effect of that is, for those who started thinking about it, is, well, if God's not in control, is there any hope? And is there any meaning? And when your answer begins leaning towards no to that question, then it begins to eat away at you. When hopelessness takes root, it's deadly. And not just in the ultimate sense as it was for my uncle. It is death to joy. It is death to motivation. It is death to vision. It is death sometimes as a consequence to relationships. It's, it is deadly when hopelessness is gone. And the people who were reading this letter for the first time were people who were certainly susceptible to becoming hopeless, why hadn't God delivered them? Why were they dealing with oppression and rejection and persecution? And it's a question that we ask. And I think the significance of the words as he begins, what makes this a good word is as he's wrapping up this masterful uh, letter and says, may the God of peace, and he's pointing to peace, and he doesn't just say God is peaceful, So, but he's very specific about how God brought about peace. And it's listen again to what he says. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead the Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. It's not just saying, you know what? God is just saying, you know, I'm just tired of fighting, so we're just going to get along. God had fulfilled what he had promised in Genesis 3, is he was going to bring peace through the one that he had promised, who would become man, who would then take upon himself all of the sin. That's the blood of the covenant, the blood of Jesus Christ God had brought peace through the person of Jesus Christ, his own son, whom he sent into the world to be the great shepherd. In other words, to call a people to himself, to oversee, to be involved in their lives, to lead them from this place to the next place where God wants them to go. And Jesus was successful in what he has done. The irony being is the world thinks that it was was the defeated. When he died, he lost, but he won by being defeated and he proved it by rising again. And because he is the God of peace, you and I, just like the readers who heard this for the first time, can remember this truth whenever we find ourselves questioning, why is this going on? We're not getting the answer to that question. But we can know this, is that your present sufferings, no matter how minor or how intense, are not an indication that God is mad at you, that God is against you, and that God is unable to help you. God is working out his purposes to bring peace, to reconcile people from every tribe and tongue and nation to himself through the blood of Jesus Christ, and then as people have been reconciled to God, now we not only see how, but we'll see in a moment that we now have the means to be reconciled to one another and live at peace with one another and even with our enemies just as Jesus Christ did. We can have internal peace regardless of our circumstances, because God is a God of peace who has brought peace to us. He's writing this to remind us, and we need to remember this always. I don't know what's going on. I don't know why I'm suffering. We do need to question, you know, maybe, and often, their answer, why am I suffering? is because I've done something stupid and I didn't think about it. So you got to deal with that reality But even in my stupidity, even in my foolishness, even in my unfaithfulness, God is not rejecting me because all of that wrath is poured out on the blood of the covenant. And he's bought the peace. It's not a fragile peace. And it shows us God is in control. In fact, it shows us even more. God is powerful because the reference is, he brought him from the grave. So what is it that God can't do? We see the power of God demonstrated even in these simple words. We will linger with the question why, but we can eliminate one of the answers which is God is angry with me and so therefore God is not going to do anything for me or that God is not capable of doing anything. He's a God of peace who's done what nobody expected him to do for a purpose that none of us can, assume, can, can really believe if we consider what it is that he's done through this covenant. <laughs> If you hear nothing else, I want you to hear difficulties in your life or difficulties in the world around us are not in themselves an indication that God is angry with us. In my own study this week, as I was reading, one day I read Habakkuk, and I was just struck as at the end of the letter Habakkuk, who's wrestling with these very same questions, prophet, minor prophet. And listen to what he says in the final verses circumstances and then his response. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls. It's kind of a gloomy situation. There's, there's no food, there's nothing on the vines, there's no, there's no wine, there's no meat, there's no milk. There's no, I mean, not a great situation. Though all of those things are true, yet I will re- rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. God is still at work and is part of the peace. But we need to be rooted in the reason for the peace and the mode of the peace which is the person of Jesus Christ and what he has done. It is a rooting in the gospel message that we need to remind ourselves of. But if the gospel is true, then we have peace regardless of our circumstances. And the writer of Hebrews is reminding them and reminding us of that truth. But he goes on and it's even, even more amazing because as one commentator had noted that um, what the author gives us in these words is not only a benediction, a good word, and this is a good word, but he gives us a prayer. He's praying for the people. And continued, let's look what he says. Now may the God of peace, so we focus on, on the Lord, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Now what is here is because of the character of God, because of the plan, the redemptive plan of God, because of God's faithfulness to the covenant, and because of the gospel, what Jesus Christ has accomplished, now he moves on as, you know, there's the foundation of these things. May, and I'm picking up again in verse 21, may that God equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. There is a prayer in there. May this God, who has already brought peace through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, now may he work in you everything that is good, everything that is necessary, everything that brings him pleasure. In other words, may he be at work in us so that we can navigate this world, whether it is a time of peace or a time of conflict, whether it is a time of prosperity or a time of need. And yet as he's writing this, it's not just a prayer. He's rooting it in promises of God. And the, the language in here is, is interesting. And it is something I don't usually do. There's really two questions that, as I looked at this that I, I, I felt like you know, we really need to wrestle with, I need to wrestle with. And one is, what are the good things which God equips uh, the, the believers? And second is, how does God equip us with those good things? And I was benefited from a, an African Bible scholar um, from Cameroon, and I would really love to give him attribution, but even if I tried to pronounce his name, I would butcher it so badly that he would still get no attribution. So if you really, really want to know, email me this week and I will send you his name. And then I want to hear you try to pronounce it. And you might get it right. But though his name is difficult, his words are powerful. And so I'm just going to quote him. In terms of the good things, here's what he says. It seems clear in Hebrews that the good things refer to all the promises of the new covenant fulfilled in Christ. And so think back what the writer of Hebrews is writing here. May God give you all the things that are good. And he has just spent 13 chapters laying out to what those things are that are all Found in the person of Jesus Christ, because Jesus is better that 's the theme of of Hebrews. If anybody ever asks you again, remember that Jesus is better then what everything so thats that 's what the writer of hebrews the argument that he 's making throughout this letter, and because that 's true now here's uh, he 's giving us this application here, and, and this brilliant African uh, Bible scholar is saying it's clear that it refers to all the promises, everything that's fulfilled in the new covenant. Those are the foundation. Those are the good things. And he goes on this. Based on this understanding, the author of Hebrews prays that God would equip us with all good things, with everything he's promised, that are already fulfilled in Christ, the precious promises and benefits of Christ in the gospel. And so God is... This prayer is saying, God, just give us what you've promised. Which is a backhanded way of saying, Lord, open us to recognize that you are faithful to what you have promised. Let us experience it. Let us be rooted in it. Let us understand that this is true. But the second question is, how does does God do this? And and again, the same man, I, I think, brilliantly put it. He says this, God does not equip us by giving us equipment to go to work for him. Rather, and that's important to recognize. In other words, he's saying here, okay, this is not saying, Lord, we now realize you and I, we're good. Life is still tough. I need to figure out how to work this out. Give me whatever tools and resources I need. And if you want to give me some instructions, that would be helpful too. That's the way I think. That's not the way the writer of the Hebrews thinks. Again, the African scholar says, God does not equip us by giving us equipment to go to work for him. Rather, he equips us by taking residence in us and himself working his will in us. And we see that evident in in this passage that is, is a very subtle thing. It may Now may the, the God of peace, verse 21, then equip you with every good thing that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. The working in us, it's not giving to us externally, it is being at work from within us, transforming us, enabling us, empowering us. Picking back up with the quote, he equips us by taking residence in us and himself working his will in us. Not only that, he takes pleasure in what he does in us. The work that pleases God is the work of God that is in us. You need to recognize what's being stated here. When you have rested in Jesus Christ, when you have received Jesus Christ, all the promises will new, true. And God is at work, He's at work in you, and it begins to work itself out. But even as we see in a couple of different places in the scripture, you are God's workmanship. And, and you know, the, the one of the words is poema, you are the poem that God is writing. You are His piece of art, his masterpiece. And as he is at work within you, and he sees His hand, he who is perfect, and he is carving away the sin slowly but surely. And he is shaping you for the way he has wired you and created you, slowly but surely, at least it seems to us. He's saying, I like that. Or as he said to begin with, with each piece of his creation. He saw it and said it was good. But when he saw humanity, he said it was very good because he created us after his own image. As he continues to shape us, and his image becomes more and more uh, evident in our lives. And he uniquely is at work within you and all of your circumstances. Difficulty, kind of like being sandblasted or being buffered with, uh, with comforts, you know, like you know, cotton to get away the dust, sawdust. I'm not an artist, as those of you who are artists can figure this out, so I don't really know what I'm talking about here. But that's... Uh, um, I it look and he's shaping you. And he each step, you need to think it's not, I'm not just forgiven. He's reminding them, you're not just forgiven. Circumstances don't indicate that God is against you and he can't do anything. He is doing what he is doing. And each step of the way, he's stopping and saying, That's good. I take delight. He takes delight in you. It's, you're not only forgiven, you're not only in peace with God, he takes delight. In what he is seeing in you. And the writer of Hebrews is writing this. And he's reminding us there's an old action that says, What God requires, he provides. And we see this illustrated here. And he wants them to rest in that because at the end of it, he wraps the whole thing up. And I'm going to wrap it up here now, too, because he moves on in the other, as he moves into the kind of the, the final greeting part. It's not insignificant. He says, So I appeal to you, brothers bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly, so briefly that took us 16 months or whatever to to, to go through, but could have been more. There's a whole lot more that could be said. And and, and he's calling us. He's reminding them of something. The whole story, the whole foundation of God's plan of redemption, the things that he had used as symbols, and and yet substance throughout the time of the Old Covenant that pointed to Christ, that were fulfilled in Christ, that are now true. He's calling us to something, and and these words are saying, so what are you going to do with all of this? And, And his primary emphasis is, rest in it. That's what he wants them, rest in it, trust. There's nothing better than we have that is in Jesus Grow more deeply in what you know about is promised in Jesus. Recognize what God is doing. But the question for every one of us is what are we what are you going to do for this? And and the appeal, and that's the word I appeal to you, brothers. The appeal of the author of Hebrews is for you and me to forsake everything, including sometimes peace and comfort, no matter what our circumstance, to treasure and to follow Jesus, the one who loves you and the one who delights in you, and the one who has given everything you need to have peace with God and peace even in this world. May God give us the grace to remember, to believe, and to enjoy his promises. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for this word, in many ways simple, and yet the profound nature of it, not just because of the depth or the complexity, the whole idea that you are at work in us and you are providing everything that we need. It's difficult for us to grasp, so I pray that you would grant us the grace to believe and produce the fruit that accompanies true faith. We pray that all of this, for our joy, but for your honor and glory, to you be all praise. We pray in this and every church. Amen.